Well, all right. Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode. Uh, if you follow us on Instagram or on our YouTube channel, you probably saw that I put out just a just a short, like forty five second video the other day, uh, saying, you know, I recognize it's it's been a while since we put an episode up. I was just saying sorry about that. You know, it's been crazy, just really really busy lately. If you're watching, you can see that. Uh, Nerva's not actually in the studio with me today because she has just been burning at both ends, uh, teaching at school, and, and now she's starting classes again. And, uh, so um, I'm just rolling solo today on this subject. Um, but yeah, I, and by the way, if you if you want to follow us on uh, Instagram in particular, I don't like Instagram, obviously, but you know it is what it is. That's where most of people have historically followed us uh, before we knew they were uh, the spawn of Lucifer. Um, but, uh, anyways, um, you can follow us there at Fremont FM and I'm trying to probably going to post more just like little, you know, engagements day to day on there coming up and our YouTube channel as well. Maybe I'll try to put them up on, on rumble as well. Um, so anyways, if, if you're not following us on those, I would kind of recommend you do that because I'm going to do stuff in between episodes, just kind of hitting stuff as it, as it comes along. So we don't have to wait so long to kind of sit down and do these full episodes. So, um, but anyways, yeah, I have been hesitant to, to kind of jump in, especially with all the stuff going on with Israel, partly because, um, you know, it's just not, it's not a subject that I've studied in depth for a long time. Like uh, on the theological side, I've looked into it a good bit from different perspectives, but as far as the, like the geopolitical stuff and the history of Israel, the modern state of Israel, all that kind of stuff, it's just not an area I know super well. So, you know, when you're getting into stuff like where there's war going on and just, man, the atrocities that are happening and the heightened emotions and the the camps and the, and the disagreements, um, just makes me a little hesitant to want to to jump into this thing at all. And two, um, you know, it's like it, it this started a few weeks ago and a lot of people have already said a lot of really good things. So what else are you going to get on here and, and add? But um, so, you know, I was tempted to just kind of kind of go past it and, and jump on to the next topic. But a couple people have reached out and said, hey, what are you thinking on this? Like, uh, do you have any good sources um, you can pass to us to help us make sense of what's going on there and, and what, you know, how should we be thinking about this biblically and how should we be praying and all that kind of stuff, interacting on social media. And so I said, okay, you know, um, even though it's not like my area, there are a few things that it touches that I have looked at in the past. And so what I'm going to do is maybe break this up into di- into a few different small segments and just kind of give like uh, a framework of, of what I see as sort of the presuppositions that many people bring to the table as they're discussing this um, to, to maybe help you parse through it and see like, okay, what are the, what are the factors that contribute to coming down on these with these conclusions on this issue, um, specifically with regard to uh, theology and uh, something like just war theory? Uh, and then with that, I'm just going to kind of like give offer you a bunch of sources and resources that you can look into on your own that have that I think 
are helpful, at least maybe not even describing my own perspective, which I'm still coming to on this issue. Um, but they will they will be good versions of various perspectives on this issue that I think are worth looking into. You know, one of, I've I've picked on. Uh, the colleges and higher education, you know, on this podcast, not because of the idea of higher education. I think higher education done rightly is a beautiful thing, a needed thing, a necessary thing. Um, good Christian scholarship is needed. And you can do that rightly, but more from the perspective of what has happened to higher education, uh, specifically in Western civilization, and even that is encroached into the, the Christian universities in many cases, if not most cases. I've picked on that because it has departed from a biblical understanding of what it means to grow in wisdom and grow in knowledge. Um, but I think one of the good one of the good aspects that has been helpful for me in doing when I started the master's degree at at Biola uh, in science and religion, and then kind of shifted over here uh, to liberty now and apologetics. One of the things that I think can be helpful for people is to read outside of your perspective. And of course, you want to do that at the right season, um, at the right maturity level. You know, you don't want to be, you know, uh, a high school sophomore who doesn't, you know, is not trained at all in logic. And you just start reading, you know, Richard Dawkins book because that's the other camp and you want to you want to read outside of your perspective. That's not what I'm talking about. That That's just kind of foolish running into enemy territory without any weapons uh, or any protection. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here, though, is as you mature in your uh, theological understanding, you want to, if nothing else, read within the realms of orthodoxy of different positions, especially when it comes to, you know, secondary issues like, you know, cessationism versus continuationism or, um, you know, uh, the age of the earth. Um, In this case, we're going to be looking a little bit at um, eschatological views as well as, um, I don't know what the category is, but, you know, dispensationalism versus covenantal theology and how those things kind of connect to something called Zionism. And what I'm going to say um, here is that I don't really have a dog in the fight so much with this issue, um, even when it comes to the eschatology, pre-mill, post-mill, a-mill type categories, um, not because I don't think it's important, but because I'm real, I really am still searching in this area. I've been doing a lot of reading over the past few years because I see how it actually connects as well to um, things like how do we act in the, you know, with the public square, which is the mission of the church. Um, how do we, you know, prepare for the future? Are we just kind of waiting for the rapture? Are we, you know, investing as though that um, the kingdom is going to, you know, kind of advance and, and, you know, we're still in the early church period now, which some post-mill advocates have suggested. So these all these things connect, um, but I think there's a lot more there than I initially thought. I, I think I thought, man, I could probably get, you know, land on a view uh, within a year of, of study, and it's now, you know, I don't know, four or five years later, I'm still kind of kind of working through it. I, I have shifted some on that stuff, but I don't. I haven't come to a place where I can say, man, this is this is where I'm at, and I want to go to the mat for this view. Um, but what I do want to do is is kind of provide maybe the r- really short snapshots. This would just be a, a primer, if anything, into these areas, but give you more sources that I think are good sources to help you. Uh, pursue growing in that as well. So um, I found, uh, I'm going to pull up my my uh, Bible 
software here. You know, this is another thing I just saw the other day. You guys might have seen it as well floating around on Twitter, but uh, Logos. Anyways, my Bible software, Logos, they were they put up a advertisement, a marketing thing where they're uh, promoting Asian voices. <laughs> and of course, you know, they rightfully got, you know, just ripped up and down. And I'm like, oh, am I going to have to find a new Bible software now? So uh, if you guys got any good recommendations, I, I might do it. I'm, you know, I'm deep into Logos. I've invested a lot of money over the years in this program and, and buying these books. So it, it would be a hard shift. And you know, it's one strike and it's, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it is frustrating. That's the kind of day we're living in. We got to deal with this, you know, the woke encroachment on even your Bible software. So, um, but here we go. I want to start with this. This is out of the Dictionary of Christianity in America, and it's called Zionism and American Christianity. Okay. So I'm going to read through this, maybe make some comments from time to time, but it says, derived from the ancient name Zion of the mountain site of the fortress city of Jerusalem or the Temple Mount, Zionism as a concept is rooted in the traditions of ancient Israel. It relates to the persistent belief that God's covenant with his people, the Jews, is linked to Palestine and Jerusalem in particular, and that the land is rightfully theirs. Biblical references such as Genesis 12, 7, 15, 18, 35, 12, Numbers 34, 2 through 12, Deuteronomy 35, Joshua 15, 1 through 12, and Isaiah 11, 16 have frequently been used to establish this inextricable connection. Since biblical times, this land tradition has been an integral component of Jewish hopes and dreams, an unshakable expectation during 19 centuries of exile of returning to Zion. In the late 19th and 20th centuries, Zionism became enfleshed in a movement that has attracted a broad spectrum of American Christians, although they are a minority, numerically speaking. Among many conservative evangelical Christians, Zionism has been accorded a prominent role as a fulfillment of prophecy as one of the preconditions for the return of Christ. This second coming of the Messiah in line with premillennial views will establish the long-awaited kingdom of God, a kingdom which will last for a thousand years and be followed by the last judgment. So notice the connection here. There's a, there's a connection between Zionism and premillennialism. Now, if you're wondering, like, what's the default? Uh, and, and I'll, you know, I'm going to read about premillennialism in a minute. But if you're thinking, man, what's the default theology in America? It's by and large in evangelical circles, it's premillennialism of one sort or another. I would say dispensationalism, which is um, it's it's a particular type of very detailed premillennialism uh, that departs from historic premillennialism, by the way. And it's more of a new thing last <clears throat> last couple uh, centuries. Dispensationalism is probably the most popular version of how to kind of systematically understand the ages in the Bible and the in eschatology. And many of us have inherited that. That's that's sort of the the uh, area that I grew up in, you know, both Church of God, Assembly of God, um, and, and in many of the Baptist circles I've rolled in over time. I think would all be committed to a dispensational version of premillennialism, including, I believe, uh, Liberty University, uh, where you know where we're at now. And so, um, he was saying that Zionism, in their view of this writer, is more of a numerically minority position. And I, I would say he's probably right, right with like 
regard to the extreme versions of it where people are like super, super into Zionism. But I would say that the dispensationalism, which has often has Zionism kind of is is part of the um, I don't know, it, it, it naturally comes along with dispensationalism. So it's kind of tucked in there to the majority view, if that makes sense. So uh, I'm going to continue on here reading. Among early Christian Zionists, William Blackstone. Now, this isn't the William Blackstone of the law commentaries, but maybe in in the same family, I'm not sure. William Blackstone was a formidable figure, acknowledged as the father of American Christian Zionism. He worked tirelessly for several decades on behalf of a Jewish homeland in Israel. High visibility was given to his efforts through his endeavor to persuade President Benjamin Harrison to contact world leaders in the interests of an international conference on Zionist aspirations. This is in 1891, okay? So over one million copies of his book, Jesus is Coming, were sold. Another outstanding leader was Arno C. I don't know how to pronounce this guy's last name. Uh, Gebelin, Gebelin, whose journal Our Hope, founded in 1894, kept readers in touch not only with theological and biblical commentaries on Zionism, but reported on the international prophecy conferences and political movements related to the restoration of the nation. So you can see this kind of starting at, you know, late 1800s. Uh, Continuing on here, Dwight L. Moody, and you probably heard of, you know, Moody, famous, you know, preacher, revivalist, um, in his own ministry and in the establishment of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, gave consistent encouragement and support to the Zionist cause. So Zionism, you know, really, as Moody was going around doing a lot of powerful work in evangelism, um, he also promoted Zionism and, and popularized it during this time period. Other conservative evangelicals who have zealously affirmed the movement toward Jewish rights to a homeland include R.A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey, by the way, I think he was the co-founder of uh, Biola, if I'm not mistaken, which is an acronym, um, Bible Institute of L.A. And so a lot of, like Moody Bible Institute, a lot of these Bible Institutes were popping up in the early 1900s during uh, the uh, modernist fundament- fundamentalist controversy. So you had, you know, you had the Princeton greats and J. Gratian Machen was, was, Machen was fight, fighting and many others, B.B. Uh, Warfield before him, but Machen in particular was fighting against the encroaching liberalism that was taking place in, in Princeton and these other, you know, originally Christian-founded universities that were swinging uh, to the theological left. They were fighting as far as they could, but didn't seem to be able to to withstand the onslaught. And so people eventually started leaving those universities and starting Bible institutes. And that's part of this whole greater movement. A lot of these guys that moved to these Bible institutes, these Bible schools, carried Zionism with them. So R.A. Torrey, James M. Gray, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and Billy Graham. Christian Zionism has also been prominent among mainline Protestants as well as Catholics throughout the 20th century. Rather than being connected with the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, however, the foundation of their perspective has primarily been a moral commitment to a people grievously persecuted and maltreated through the centuries. The Holocaust, with its denial to Jews of human dignity and the right to survive, is viewed as the climax of this injustice. So, 
he's saying, you know, you had Tory and Graham and Robertson, and they were all kind of theologically committed to this idea that uh, the Jews should, they have a right to their homeland. So there was that. And then there's this other group, the mainline Protestants, which weren't necessarily committed to that idea. But they did see the Jews as historically persecuted in that sense. They should, you know, have this place where they can come together. Initially, uh, I'll, I'll play a little short synopsis video, maybe in the next part or the part after, where they kind of give a brief uh, overview of the history of, you know, and I think where, where Jews started fleeing Germany in the 30s, 1930s, um, to this area of what then, I guess, some people referred to as Palestine. I, I don't remember what it was called specifically. But um, so in that in that case, I think some of these leaders would say, you know, yeah, we need to make a safe place for them to flee. They've been persecuted, especially after uh, World War Two, for them to come together and, and kind of have have a place of their own. So that was a different different motivation there. So uh, continue on here. Uh, the American Palestine Committee was commenced in 1932, merging with the Christian Council on Palestine and becoming the American Christian Palestine Committee. By 1942, there were over 1,200 members, and by 1946, approximately 15,000, including clergy and lay members. Throughout the U.S., over 100 local chapters were organized. Their primary goal was to arouse the American Christian conscience toward a Zionist resolution of a homeland for dispossessed Jews. So sort of along the lines of what I was just saying. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was an ardent spokesperson for the American Christian Palestine Committee, advocating for a haven for Jewish refugees in Palestine and subsequently supporting the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. Other Christian contemporaries of Niebuhr who espoused similar Zionist views were W.F. Albright, Francis J. McConnell, Ralph Sockman, Daniel Poling, and Paul Tillich. Currently among the exponents of this heritage are Frank Little, Roy and Alice Eckert, John Palakowski, Eugene Fisher, Edward Flannery, and Isaac C. Rottenberg. I don't know if you guys are familiar. I'm not familiar with those guys. So, Several have channeled their support through the National Christian Leadership Conference for Israel and the National Conference of Christian Jews. Almost done with this article, by the way. So Christian Zionists reject the view that the biblical promises made to ancient Israel were abrogated by the coming of Christ and were superseded by the establishment of the church. Okay. So, um, not like Christian non-Zionists, you know, a lot of times, sometimes they're called, uh, you know, advocates of replacement theology, although I'll get to that later. And some of them don't like that language, but, um, they would, they would hold that. No, at least in some cases, some of the land promises to Israel, that thing were, you know, that they were either ended or, you know, when God, in, in essence, um, some would say divorced Israel, uh, physical Israel at the at the end of the old covenant, culminating in the temple destruction, AD 70. And basically the, the church was grafted into true Israel, which were those that accepted the Messiah. Some call that fulfillment theology rather than replacement theology. But the idea there is that that um, there's no there's no current promises to Israel. Maybe maybe some would hold it, I guess, due to Romans eleven, that we will see this um, 
the evangelization of all of Israel, the, of modern Jews, and that will kind of culminate toward the end times. Others see that as actually being fulfilled uh, in early the first century prior to the destruction of the temple. But the the big point here is the Christian Zionists reject that that view that those were superseded by the establishment of the church. And so they would hold that, this, that the land still is due to, to modern Israelites, to, mo- to modern Jewish folks. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's basically a really short sketch of, of Zionism. So as I mentioned a, a minute ago, uh, this is tied to the theological framework called dispensationalism. I'm going to read this little article about that. So Dispensationalism is a hermeneutical approach to the Bible that became a movement within American evangelicalism after the 1870s. The term originates from, I don't know how to say this Greek word, oikonomia, and its derivatives, which appear about 20 times in the Greek New Testament and mean, quote, to manage, regulate, administer and plan the affairs of a household, unquote. See Luke 16, 1 through 2, Ephesians 1, 10, 3, 2, 9, Colossians 1, 25. When used of God, the word refers to his sovereign plan for the world. At the heart of dispensationalism is the dividing of all time into distinguishable economies or dispensations. So it divides time into dispensations which are seen as different stages in God's progressive revelation. C.I. Schofield, a leading exponent of dispensationalism, defined a dispensation as a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. So now you, you, you might, may or may not remember the name Schofield, but the Schofield reference Bibles really um, popularized dispensational theology. So they, you know, they had the notes, the commentary notes all throughout the Bible, and that was definitely the, their position. And so diff- during different eras, during different dispensations through progressive revelation history, um, God judged different groups differently and held them to different standards, that kind of thing. Furthermore, these periods are marked off, says Schofield, in Scripture by some change in God's method of dealing with mankind. Each of the dispensations may be regarded as a new test of the natural man, and each ends in judgment, making his utter failure in every dispensation. Though many Christians have used historical periodization, like so in other words, this idea of historical periods in which God deals with different people differently um, is not necessarily unique to dispensationalists. It's kind of how they do it is part of what makes it unique. Um, But that, that has been a typical understanding theologians, you know, throughout the ages, but says though many Christians have used historical periodization, John Nelson Darby, who lived from 1800 to 1882 was the first to create a full-blown system of interpretation. So the 1800s, an early leader of the Plymouth Brethren in Great Britain, Darby was a futurist premillennialist who believed that Christ will return before the millennium and that biblical prophecies of the last days were yet to be fulfilled. To these ideas, Darby added a literalistic hermeneutic and the strict separation of Israel and the church. So, you know, whereas other theologians will see 
true Israel is made up of the church, Jew and Gentile, who you know are are regenerated and come to faith in Christ. Um, and there might be still a you know Jews in the flesh that God has something like Romans eleven, but by and large, God always has one people. It was physical Israel in the old covenant, um, the church in the new covenant made up of where Gentiles are engrafted into true Israel. Uh, for Darby, he makes this kind of hard separation between Israel and the church. So Darby saw in scripture two totally distinct divine plans for history, one concerning an earthly people, Israel, the other a heavenly people, the church. God's plan for Israel was revealed through a series of covenants, Adamic, Mosaic and Davidic, which pointed to the establishment of a messianic kingdom on the earth. But when Messiah came, Israel rejected him. God then postponed the kingdom, turned away from Israel, and created out of the Gentiles a new people, the church. According to this postponement theory, God will not resume his dealings with Israel until he finishes building the church and raptures it to heaven. Then the quote-unquote great parentheses in prophetic time will end and the events of the last days will take place. The great tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet, the battle of Armageddon, the second coming of, the, of Christ, the binding of Satan, and the setting up of the millennial kingdom. You probably recognize that, that rubric. So, you know, this, this kind of rubric largely, at least to the level, this level of detail, um, it started with uh, Darby. Um, now, historic premillennialism, we'll, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, goes all the way back. Many, many said, have, have church historians have said that this is actually the earliest version of eschatology taught uh, by the church fathers. So that'd be historic, historic premillennialism that differs from this version of dispensationalism in different ways. We'll see in a minute. But this is the kind of this version is like the left behind, you know, series. This is the kind that most of us are most familiar with. And we kind of just accept by default. Initially, not all premillennialists accepted Darby's views, especially controversial was his doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, which split his own Plymouth Brethren. Um, Dar Darby's dispensationalism came to America in the 1870s. During a series of preaching tours, Darby won over a number of influential evangelical pastors and teachers, including, again, this name, William Blackstone, William Eagle Blackstone, James H. Brooks, James M. Gray, and C.I. Schofield. Dispensational views spread into conservative evangelicalism, through the Bible and prophetic conference movement, specifically the, there was these Niagara conferences um, that took place about that time, and that's where this Darby's ideas really spread. So spread through the Niagara conferences, the Bible institutes, a number of influential journals, and most importantly, like I said before, the Schofield Reference Bible from uh, 1909 and was revised in 1967. Schofield identified seven dispensations, um, innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, and kingdom, and articulated what became the standard dispensational approach in America. Though rejected at first by many conservatives by the 1920s, it eclipsed other kinds of premillennialism and became closely identified with the fundamentalist movement, thanks to able teachers like Arno C. Gabelin, Harry Ironside, Louis S. Chafer, 
who founded Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924 and wrote the movement's most influential, Systematic Theology, 1947. In the 1980s, the dispensationalism finds able defenders in John Walvoord, uh, Charles C. Ryrie, many of you probably have, are familiar with his commentaries, J. Dwight Pentecost, all from De- uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, and is the most common view of eschatology taught in fundamentalist schools and churches. So um, that's, you know, dispensationalism in a nutshell. Uh, you can get, you know, super into like, you know, the details of variant variation on the views and all that kind of stuff. But but that's important to know. So that this idea goes back to to Darby, really. Um, in in the 1800s. Now, just because it had a late development, obviously doesn't mean it's false. Um, you know, that would be the genetic fallacy to say, well, it came from here, therefore it's false. Uh, but it should it should kind of give us pause to say, man, like rapture theology, really. You know, I think we we tend to think that that is the historic teaching of the church throughout the ages. But really, this kind of rapture theology, where there's a you know, really connected to the the 70 weeks of Daniel. You know, where the weeks are correlated to years and you have these weeks that lead into the, the coming of Christ, uh, the, the first advent of Christ when he comes, you know, to live and die. And then and you have this parentheses because the Jews rejected their Messiah, um, where the church age happens in dispensationalism. Then you have this, you know, this kind of other coming of Christ where it's a rapture and the church is taken out. Then you have the final week to get you to the 70 weeks. Um, and that's the the great tribulation. All that that rubric came about in the 1800s, uh, primarily through John Nelson Darby, and then was further developed by these other um, thinkers, and and then kind of picked up and really given theological weight by Dallas Theological Seminary, um, spread throughout. That again, this is the Left Behind series, the water we swim in, um, and and it also is connected with this idea. You know, things get worse and worse um, now. Thankfully, people that, you know, many people that advocate this haven't um, haven't taken a passive position. So, f- for instance, I think the uh, one of the key figures there that you saw was, you know, Jerry Falwell, who became very involved in politics, although I think at first having that theology, he didn't think that, w- that Christians should be involved in politics, but later came to change his mind on that. And he saw the great evil that was happening, thankfully, through abortion and, and started, you know, not only got involved, but really took lead and took charge. And and now we, you know, although many, of course, you know, non-Christians can't stand him, we owe great debt, you know, to, to the things he did. So thankfully, many of the people who advocate this sort of dispensationalism where it's it seems more consistent to not be involved with quote unquote earthly things and to kind of let things get worse. One of the ideas was, you know, why polish, uh, you know, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? You know, it's one of the classic statements of dispensationalism. Like, why are you guys getting involved in all these things like, you know, politics and entertainment and education? The highest thing we can do is just preach the gospel and rescue souls because. The ship is going down, and I think that is the most consistent view uh, with dispensationalism. Although, again, if you're a dispensationalist and you and you're inconsistent, I'm thankful. <laughs> um, but but just note that that is a late development. Doesn't make it necessarily false, but it should give us a little pause and say, man, what what are the 
what were the views outside of that? And is that is that actually the strongest view? So what, what I want to look at now is um, historic premillennialism. So let me pull that up while I'm pulling that up. Um, just a quick note on um, dispensationalism. So I think it was, I don't know if it's two years ago, but Michael Brown and Craig Keener co-wrote a book. I think it's called Who's Afraid of the Antichrist or something like that. Um, but I read the book a while back. He, it, actually, I, I asked uh, Dr. Keener some questions about it when he did the the podcast episode with us, um, I don't know, maybe about a year and a half ago. And in this book, they are both committed to historic premillennialism, but they reject the rapture theology. And this book gives, I think, a pretty good case if you're interested to say, man, what are what are the arguments uh, from premillennialists um, that accept this idea that Christ will return and then there'll be a thousand-year reign on the earth before the final judgment? Um, what are the arguments for them against um, the rapture theology? I would check that book out when you have a chance. And, you know, like I said, this isn't a final word. This is I'm giving you kind of like stuff to do further research on. But I found it pretty persuasive on, you know, like what does it mean in Thessalonians when it talks about being caught with, you know, believers will be caught up with Jesus and there they will be with him. You know, is that rapture theology in the Bible? What do you do with, you know, Daniel 70 weeks? Is that the best way to understand that, this kind of thing? So they go into those things in in, in detail in a couple chapters and they give a lot more reasons, uh, you know, uh, two people in a field, one is taken, the other's left. And, you know, how does, what is, what does that mean? Uh, exegetically. So check that book out when you get a chance. But here is, um, I'm going to get into this. This will help you understand maybe what premillennialism is. So this is the belief that there will be a thousand year reign of Christ on earth at the end of the present age. So let me, let me pause there real quick. Basically all the uh, eschatological positions are built. The words are built around something called the, the millennial period or the millennium. And that really comes out of Revelation 20, where we see um, Satan is bound and kept from deceiving the nations for a thousand years. And basically Christ rules. There's like this first resurrection kind of thing. So that's that's where the that's where at least the these different paradigms hinge for whatever reason around that chapter in Revelation. So to give you a quick sketch, pre-mill, that means, you know, Christ returns prior to that happening, prior to that thousand-year uh, time where Christ reigns and there's this first resurrection of believers, Satan's bound up before he's loosed one final time before the final judgment comes. Uh, post-millennialism, we'll talk about that's that's Christ comes after. So I'll get into the details of that when we read it, but um, the on that view, when Christ comes, the end, the final judgment happens right then, and death is the final enemy that's taken care of. Amillennialism is similar in that sense that Christ comes, the end happens, but they they don't necessarily see things as getting better, whereas the post mills think the, the kingdom of God, like leaven, will 
um, come in the earth and, and we will see the, the nation subdued under Christ and, and that we, you know, will see the victory of God here prior to that return. A-mills tend to see both side by side, the good and evil. Good continues to get better. Evil continues to get worse. Uh, wheat and tares kind of thing before Christ returns. So pre-mill view, though, things get worse and worse. Um, they tend to, it, it tends to be what's called a pessimistic um, eschatology. So if you think back to, uh, John MacArthur's recent video that was went viral where he says we lose down here. That's a that's a good uh, good expression. I mean, although pre mill advocates probably you know don't like that kind of language, but I think that is that does express at least partially the idea like before the second advent or before the return of Christ. In essence, the the church loses the 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 enemy keeps you know control. The enemy is still you know Satan is still the god of this world. Uh, he wins, but in winning the world, he still ultimately loses because Christ comes back and he punishes the wicked and separates it out and you know makes a new heaven and new earth. Um, eventually, after that thousand years, which is kind of a weird um, thing that even when I asked Dr. Keener about it, he he didn't. He didn't have a lot of details on the thousand years themselves and how to put all that stuff together. But anyways, um, so let me let me get back to this article here. Uh, it says this teaching is based on Revelation 21 through 10, elaborated by certain Old Testament texts such as Isaiah 55 through 66, which teach that there will be a time of justice, peace and righteousness on earth. Generally, premillennialists believe that the kingdom of Christ will be preceded preceded by certain signs such as the preaching of gospel to all nations, a great apostasy, wars, famines, earthquakes, the appearance of the Antichrist, and a period of great tribulation. So they share like historic pre-mill advocates, which like I said, does go back to uh, early church fathers, um, share the pessimism of dispensationalism. You know, we, we should expect to see, you know, these sorts of signs like gospel goes to all nations. You'll even see that, for instance, um, you know, in the AG world, which is more dispensational, you know, the rapture theology is part of it. Well, it was when, you know, back in when I was going to school at Southeastern, part of the 16 fundamental doctrines. Um, but they, I think oftentimes will will couch their message of the, the great commission and reaching all the nations. Like once we reach the nations, you know, then Christ returns, we'll reach every nation with the gospel. And so there's still some unreached uh, tribes in the hills of, you know, South America and, and hills in Africa or uh, Papua New Guinea, you know, all these kinds of things like once we reach every nation like that, there's really nothing left besides maybe this, the rise of the Antichrist, uh, great apostasy, increase of wars, earthquakes, any, uh, all that stuff happening. But we shouldn't expect to see any kind of rapture. This will just all culminate in the return of Christ where he sets up his kingdom here for a thousand years. That would be the Brown Keener position. Um, so it says during the millennium, the Jews will be converted and will become zealous Christian missionaries. Nature will have its curse removed and produce abundant crops, and evil will be restrained through the authoritarian rule of Christ. Despite these idyllic conditions, there is a final rebellion against Christ and his saints. 
However, God destroys those evil forces and the eternal states of heaven and hell are established. Many premillennialists have taught that during the thousand years, dead or martyred believers will be resurrected with glorified bodies to intermingle with the other inhabitants of the earth. In the 20th century, premillennialism has been identified with dispensationalism, although it is not necessary to follow such a rigid chronology of biblical interpreta- interpretation to believe in the premillennial view. Hence, again, what I said earlier where um, Brown and, and Keener hold to premill but not dispensationalism. So, at least not the kind advocated by Darby and others in his uh in his lineage of thought. So uh, another another aspect of that, a lot of pre-mill folks like Brown, for instance, is a, is a Christian Zionist. I think he is a Messianic Jew of Jewish descent. I think he would call himself Messianic. Um, so you do have this connection, like the, the pre-mill, especially pre-mill dispensationalists, but they're going to be committed by and large to this idea of Zionism where this land is that that is you know God's promise to the uh the children of Abraham you know not not <clears throat> Hagar and Abraham with Ishmael but on the Isaac side um the Jews the, the people of Israel that is the promised land from them and that still carries to this day and and that's often connected to their eschatology and the signs of the times. So that's why um, whenever stuff happens in Israel, you'll see the dispensationalists are, will be right there to, to talk about, you know, here's what's going on on the prophetic time timeline. And, you know, Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon, this kind of thing. So um, on the other hand, I think we did ask uh, Dr. Keener, you know, about his connection with Israel and, his view of premillennialism, and he said he, I think how he worded it was he was he wasn't quite as confident as Dr. Brown was about the the whole uh, way of mapping out Israel's connection to end times and in this um, great revival that was supposed to take place and all that. So I don't know. You can go check that out if it's if it's on there. Maybe on the Patreon only, but I'll try to pull it out of there if I get a chance. Uh, let's see how oh, we're going really long here. So. Let me uh, let me pause here for this part uh, just before we go into post millennialism, and then we'll come back to that next part. So, no, I know it's gonna be a little dry, but hopefully, it's it's giving you some idea of where these theological positions kind of map out and how they play into how they can play into one's views on Israel and what's going on in this modern moment. So anyways, we'll, we'll get into the other part uh, next time. So see you for part two here in a minute.